I mean, I really want to try a bit of that, but am yeah. I allowed? Yeah, of course you are. Is that weird? No. Having seasonal produce all around us means our menu is constantly changing. New techniques, new flavour combinations, new ingredients. Life at the Black Swan keeps everyone on their toes. Take a picture. But there are one or two staple dishes which we serve all the year round. Our bread course has been the same delicious sourdough for nearly 10 years, but this week we decided to change things up. And with the help of our special guest, Ravneet Gill, we developed a new one, which I think is even better. Good amount of shrapnel off the crust. <laughs> my name is Tommy Banks, and this is my podcast, Seasoned. In every episode, we go behind the scenes at my restaurant, The Black Swan, and at the farm where all our ingredients are grown. This truly is field to fork. It's March the 8th. This is seasoned episode three. Ravni Gill and bread. Before we begin, I want to say a thank you to our sponsors. This podcast is only possible because of True Foods. True Foods are an incredible family business who make the best stocks and sauces. True Foods provides stocks to some of the best kitchens in the UK. One, two and three Michelin style restaurants use their stocks as the base for their recipes. And now, their stocks and sauces are available for you to buy at home too. I'll tell you more about them later in the episode, but you can check out their product range and find lots more information in our show notes. Is it just me, or has it really felt like spring is in the air? Yeah, it's a bit cold, but the nights are starting to stretch out, and the mornings don't feel quite as bleak as they did just a few weeks ago. But while spring signals the start of the growing season, for many of my favorite ingredients, it'll be a fair while yet before the produce is ready to gather. Last week, we celebrated all things pork and we launched a delicious pork main course featuring the tenderloin, faggot and jowl, which got Danny Jones's seal of approval. This is incredible. Absolutely incredible. That, that so tender, isn't it, that mm. pork? And that yeah. sauce is like an absolute hit. Our guests have been loving it too, as I hope they would, and we're serving around 35 portions every single night. With our pork on the menu, it is important that we use every part of the animal. So I'm always thinking, is there anything else we ought to be using which would otherwise go to waste? One product that we always have in abundance is pork fat. So last week, I challenged my farm chef, Dickie, to do something with it and create something which deserves a place on the menu. And after three days of tinkering, he's invited me to his kitchen to taste the results. How are you doing, Tommy? All right? Yeah, I'm great, mate. Good. What have you got today? Well, this week we've got a lovely uh, sort of zero waste product. So using lovage from the garden and uh, more pertinently the back fat from the pigs. Class. So once we trimmed up for the lardo, we basically made a lovely green uh, pork fat. Whoa. So the idea being that we could probably use that to serve with the bread maybe or put through like a, yeah. a sort of warm puree. The colour is ridiculous, like it's bright green like Lovage. Uh -huh. To be fair, I was quite surprised how it's turned out. Um, but the texture, because you blended it, it's almost like whipped. It's like, I mean, it's seriously delicious. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that on some sourdough would be phenomenal. Yeah. I think even like through maybe a sauce as well, like if a hot sauce, you could just put a few drops just to finish it. Yeah, like um, finish a, like we often finish like a sauce with a little bit of animal fat, don't we? Like a, a jus gras, as you call it. And that's like, it would be bright green then. Yeah, exactly that. Maybe make pastry out of that. Well, I've often thought that, like, you know, we've done stuff before with uh, bacon fat. Like there's no reason why we couldn't like, just use that. Well, like obviously traditionally you'd use lard in like short crust or whatever, well, yeah. you could use this. It's effectively the same thing, isn't it? It is, but bright green and tasting a lovage. I mean, you could put any herb through this as well, really. Yeah, I think definitely, like, going through the seasons, we could, uh, we could do all sorts, for sure. This, though, Dickie, for me, is, like, the ultimate, because it's, um, this is basically, we've made lardo out of the big sheets of fat, so this is something that we don't really have a use for, yeah. and then with good processes, you've made this into a totally unique product that I've never seen any other chef do, and it's absolutely delicious. Um, Fantastic. So, perfect. Glass. The guys will be fighting over this one, I think. They definitely will. They definitely will. We can make cake out of it. A lovage cake. That sounds good. A pork cake. We might need to work on the marketing of that, to be fair. I mean, I think a pork cake sounds quite delicious, personally. Maybe we'll have to take a vote. Tell me exactly how you made it. So, we took the back fat from the pigs. Um, Trimmed it up, used the lovely square pieces for lardo, and then we basically minced all the trim, mm -hmm. and then uh, put that in the oven, uh, one fifty degrees for about an hour, to render that right out. Uh, and then when it was hot, same process as the green oil. So, uh, two parts uh, liquid fat to one part lovage. Uh, blend that at seventy degrees for ten minutes, just to break it right, right down, and then just hang the the pulp straight out through muslin. Wow. There is a hierarchy in any restaurant kitchen, but at the Black Swan, we try to be as collaborative as possible with input from all of the chefs. But ultimately, it's the head chef, Callum, and myself who have to sign a dish off, making sure it looks amazing, tastes amazing, and fits the ethos and values of the business, whilst, of course, sitting alongside everything else that we're serving. So, Callum and I have been discussing Dickie's green fat and coming up with a plan. So Cal, have you tried that pork fat Dickie and Maz made? Yeah, first of all, visually, and then we're on a podcast, very vibrant. Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, isn't it? Incredibly vibrant, I thought it was, uh, and, the t and the taste of it actually uh, was incredible. I think um, the only tweak that we're gonna make to it is we're adding 2% salt to it, uh, uh, like what we do with our cultured butter here. Yeah, so I mean, I'd like to get on the menu, I think it's, it's great. Yeah, I think um, so at the minute we're trying to uh, work on a new kind of bread serving. And I think that that'd be a really nice kind of story to tell because obviously we've got the pork main course that just went on last night. Yeah. Um, to tie it in. So using all that um, back fat that we've got to, to do that would be incredible. Callum's vision for this is green pork fat spread on bread. If we're going to present this in such a simple way, then there's nowhere to hide. That sourdough needs to be incredible. So it's somewhat fortuitous that bacon extraordinaire Ravenite Gill is up in Yorkshire and paying us a special visit. Ravenite is the host of Junior Bake Off. If you've got little ones who love bacon and sweet treats at home, then you'll know exactly who I mean. Ravni has trained in top kitchens, perfected her trade, and now I'm hoping she will give the seal of approval to our new bread course. 
There's definitely no point me getting involved. It's been a fair few years since I was making the bread for the restaurant, so I'm handing over to Alice, who has made the sourdough her personal mission. Lovely, Rav, if you want to follow me, I'm going to take you to our pastry. I'm be learning from you. Pastry kitchen, your kind of second home in your life. Alice takes Ravneet down to our pastry section below the main kitchen. It is quieter than upstairs, but with various ovens baking away ahead of service this evening, the hum of the extractor fan is unfortunately a necessary evil. Right, come on through. It's a bit of a rabbit warren down here. So yeah, this is a bread. We've got some that's about to go in just the final loaf of the mm -hmm. day that we're going to bake off, but this is some stuff that came out earlier on, so it's just starting to cool down and getting that nice little crust to it. The restaurant's always had a really lovely classic sourdough recipe. It's been the kind of the bread offering since it's been open. But the lovage and the pork fat is really nice and rich, and so we thought, right, we want to up the sourness of the bread a little bit. So we got together four ancient UK grains. So there's a whole host in here. So some barley, there's some rye, ema, and spelt. Ooh. And they're all, by and large, kind of some of the earliest grains that people would have been farming. Uh, and they've stayed with us and they're just really, really nice and tasty. So what we do is we ferment that in the buttermilk with 2% salt for about four days. So it soaks up a lot of that liquid. Wow. It almost doubles in weight, basically. It takes on a really nice sourness. Ooh. These ancient grains really are the secret ingredient in this bread. But if Ravneet had her way, they'd be served just as they are. I mean, I really want to try a bit of that, but am yeah. I allowed? Yeah, of course you Is are. Is that weird? No, let me get you a nice little spoon. That's delicious. Yeah. And it's really sour. It's, yeah, because I think you need it to, this will already be semi-sour from the fact that it's sourdough anyway, but you want it to read through. So we get about something like 800 grams of this into our batches. Uh, so each kind of loaf gets a good chunk of it. Okay. The fermented grain should deepen in flavour, which will then run through the bread. It'll add texture and colour and create a more interesting looking loaf. And of course, it'll taste bloody delicious. I can't wait to try that. There will be something to try yeah. very, very soon. So I thought we would, would get um, our final loaf in the oven so that you can see our scoring yeah, of it. Fantastic. Um, and then, yeah, we're going to try some and try some with our pork fat and lovage and see how mm. that kind of combines together. That sounds all right. You need patience working in our pastry section to make the perfect loaf. You just can't rush things. So Alice, how many attempts has it taken for you to get this perfect loaf of bread? It's taken a little while. I think we, I always try with stuff like this to think about focusing on one aspect of it and getting, that, getting yourself happy with that before you then maybe change another factor of it. Must be an absolute nightmare if someone calls in sick. And then you've got no one to do the bread. Well, luckily we're very flexible. So okay. almost everyone bar, maybe just a couple of guys in the kitchen at the minute do pastry shifts. Fantastic. It's a really fluid um, team. As the bread was in the oven, Ravni revealed that this kind of baking was once a bit alien to her. She had to teach herself to be instinctive and shake off some of her professional training. I think the issue is, when I went to cookery school, I did six months of pastry at Le Cordon Bleu, and it wrongly made me very pigeonholed into a certain way of thinking. And I remember my first couple of kitchen jobs, I was like, no, no, no. If I'm going to make creme patissier, I need to have my whisk ready, my ice bath, I need to have this and this and this. And I was so focused that any chef telling me differently, I just couldn't understand it. And I used to get very agitated if I couldn't get all my things in order. 
But then I don't know what happened, but I, I learned to relax. And now I think that because it's, I know my pastry through touch and feel, I'm a completely different pastry chef than I would have been had I stayed that way. Finally, it's time to taste. And we've got a beautiful, shiny green quenelle of Dickie's pork fat to serve alongside it. Fingers crossed, this has all been worth it. Right, okay, Alice, let's try this bread. Yes, please. So, yeah, so these were baked a little bit earlier on. They just have that time to cool down and we just want everything to kind of set inside so you're not dragging through wow. the... Good amount of shrapnel off the crust. Mm. Ooh! Pork now. fat and lavage. Fancy, Take a picture. Wow. Oh my goodness. That bread is so good. It's got that nice kind of, people call it, I think, kind of custody almost. That, the, oh my God. the moisture in the crumb. Yeah. Hold on. If I worked here, I'd eat this every day. Mm -hmm. Something I love in bread mm -hmm. is black treacle mm -hmm. and malt extract. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wonder if you took the same recipe and added some malt to it, mm -hmm. what it would do. But I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, this is pretty perfect. <laughs> I wouldn't do much to it. I'm gonna to be totally honest. I, I'm gonna to swear. I fucking hate lavage. <laughs> it's, so, it's one of I'm the so worst things. Okay. Yeah. But this is delicious. <laughs> so that's decided then. Green fat served on fermented grain sourdough is going on the menu. It's the first time Alice has had one of her dishes make it onto the service, combined with the first ever outing for the shiny green fat. In fact, Ravni is concerned we're going to spark some copycats. It's that good. I'm sure that you've put this online, everyone's going to start copying you. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, this is fantastic. Later on, I'll be catching up with Ravni and finding out about her own food journey. But first, it's time for another ingredient profile. And this week, I've gone for an absolute staple. Something that we have on our farm, but no doubt, lots of you at home will get fresh too. I'm talking about eggs. I'm very passionate about eggs. Um, I think I feel like I've grown up eating a lot of eggs and I still do today. Every morning I have a three egg omelette with some delicious cheese in it. I just think it's the quickest, simplest, most nutritious breakfast and it's warm and delicious. Um, but eggs as a chef, they're just the most versatile ingredient. I would be gutted not to be able to cook with eggs because everything from beautiful egg dishes for breakfast and on a, on a menu, but also everything in desserts, all the best things, whether it's a mousse or a cake, they've all got eggs in them. Um, I think growing up on a farm, keeping hens was always something that, that we did. Um, for me, I didn't just grow up on a farm though, I grew up on a farmhouse bed and breakfast. So my going to school routine in the morning was me and my brother, we would sort of obviously get ready for school. We'd come for into the kitchen where we'd walk into breakfast service where mum and dad would be, and they're not trained chefs, so it would always be quite high octane trying to get these six covers of breakfast out, which I look back on now, which is quite funny. But my dad was in charge of eggs and mum would do everything else. He would um, basically, he would take all the fresh eggs from the farm, he would, he would crack them onto, a, onto little saucers and he would see how fresh they were so a really fresh egg the albumum sits really high so that's sort of the jelly bit around the yolk and it doesn't have any sort of wateriness to the outside if it's totally fixed. so he would only poach the very very freshest ones and then they would get relegated to fried 
and then scrambled. And the ones that were actually perfectly good to use would then get relegated to cakes. So you'd have this egg grading system. So my mum would be flapping around the kitchen trying to get the breakfast out and my dad would be messing around with eggs. So I've always had this sort of inbuilt uh, passion towards eggs and the sourcing of them. Um, and I do think they represent brilliant value for money as, as a food. If you want to cook up some delicious eggs at home, my advice, keep it simple. At home I cook a lot of eggs and actually you don't need any other ingredients other than the eggs themselves. If you've got really good quality eggs, I don't really add anything to it. If I'm making an omelette, maybe a knob of butter, but if I'm making scrambled eggs, nothing. It's all down to technique. To scramble eggs perfectly, you need to do it on quite a low heat and just keep stirring them and it'll thicken almost like a custard. So it'll thicken first before you start to get the lumps and then you keep taking it on and off the heat so it never gets too hot. And then as it starts to thicken slightly, you start to get those lumps. And then what you end up doing is getting the sort of slight lumps of egg, but they're really thick, almost like savory custard around the outside. And you don't need to add any cream or milk or butter to it because actually just with good technique and this I say it's slow but it still only takes five minutes to make and yeah a little jazzy garnish I would shave a few bits of uh, a hard cheese over it and, and maybe a bit of Henderson's relish or something like that just to just to season it up but really eggs are good on their own it's that time of the show where we hear a couple of short adverts please don't skip past as I'll be recommending some brilliant food brands which I think you might love but first, a word from our sponsors. I want to tell you about our series sponsor, True Foods. If you've not checked out their website yet, then why not? Visit True Foods Limited and you'll find their range of fresh stocks and sauces, all available to be delivered straight to your door. Clearly, I love True Foods products and I use them myself and that's why I'm recommending them. But a little confession as well. I actually drink a flask of True Foods beef stock every day. It's my pack up. It's packed full of protein. It's so good for you. There's no added nasties. So not only do I cook with True Food sources, but I drink it too. If you're looking for a healthy option for your lunch, as well as something amazing to cook with, I can't recommend True Foods highly enough. Listeners to this podcast can use code SEASON10 to get an introductory 10% off their first order. That's seasoned 10 for 10% off just for listening to this episode. Since this week we're celebrating brilliant pastry chefs, I'd like to talk about one of the best pastry chefs I know, and he's Florian Poirot. Um, Florian is actually the British pastry champion. I know he might sound French, well he is very French, but he has represented the UK in the World Pastry Championships. Um, Florian makes the most incredible macarons, without doubt the best I've ever tasted. So if you're looking for a little special gift either for yourself or someone else, check out Florian Poirot online. You can get his amazing cakes and patisserie macarons, the full catalogue sent directly to your home and you'd be supporting a wonderful small artisanal producer. You won't be disappointed. With pork on the menu, and with Dickie using the spare pork fat to create a brand new dish, we're almost achieving nose to tail cookery. But there's one more element and ingredient that our pigs can provide. We turned some of our cuts into one of my favorite things to eat, charcuterie. Well, I say that we do, actually we leave it to some experts. But I always want to see for myself how these things are made. 
So Dickie and I took a trip to Ilkley, an hour or so down the road in West Yorkshire, and a butcher's called Lishman's. Now then, David, good to see you. Good to see you. Thank uh, you for coming. Got Dickie with me as well. Dickie, good to see you. It's impressive. Walking in here, you can see they know what they're doing. The shop itself, it's like a car showroom for meat. Floor to ceiling glass cabinets all lit up, showcasing various cuts. As you walk along the high street, it's definitely eye-catching. And inside the shop, it's full of everything you'd expect and a few things you wouldn't. There's some Yorkshire and Do Your Sausage, for example, to go along with the burgers, sausages, steaks and roasting joints. But David Lishman, the owner, wants to show me around the back where he and his team have been making some salami. So this is, we're in the butchery hall here. These do the processing and the curing and the uh, transforming the pig into something that's a little bit more special than, than the average, average pig. So salamis then, how long do they take? Yeah, these are taking six weeks. I can show you those. After mincing the meat, it's then kept at 26 degrees for two days. This kickstarts the bacteria. And then it's processed through a machine you might expect to see in a Willy Wonka factory. It's churning away, lightly smoking the meat. Uh, this, is, um, this is beech and oak sawdust, which we just dumped down. And we do give it a blast of, of smoke. So the smoke's giving it flavour and it's killing bacteria on the outside. Yes. The amount of smoke that we're putting on it, unless it's a smoked product, it's not giving it much flavour at all. It's just giving it a, it's just keeping the, the mould off. The processes here are complex. It's about patience and precision. They know the exact amount of salt, seasoning and smoke, the right temperature, how to hang the meats and what they ought to look like. And then they get six weeks to rest in a special chamber. So this is a climatic room. Ah. Oh, it smells good here. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can smell the smoke and the meatiness, but also like a little bit of a acidity, I think. Yeah, the fermentation, isn't it? Yes. So they say TB on them. That's yours, yes. Yes. <laughs> So uh, do you know what, they're, they're a lot bigger those salamis than... They are two kilos when they come out of the filler. Yeah. And by the time they've gone through all the processing six weeks later, they'll have shrunk down to about 1.3 kilos. So we're losing a third of the weight. Wow. And then after that then, the shelf life on that product is what? Well, it's indefinite really. Yeah. There's nothing in there that can, then can harm it. It's totally stable. That's it. The only thing... See, that's, so. fun. that's amazing science, isn't it, really? I think that would blow people's mind to think that you've got a, you've taken, effectively, the pigs from our farm, minced them up, added seasoning, you've kept them at 26 degrees for two days, 12 degrees for six weeks, and then it'll last forever. That's it. Our salami won't be ready for a few more weeks yet. But if it tastes as good as it looks and smells, then it will be another brilliant addition to the menu. It's the smell that's particularly intoxicating, I think, yeah. when, you, when you're actually around this many salamis. Yeah. I, I definitely think, one of the things I've been thinking of is we, we serve them, obviously, sliced like you traditionally expect at, at Roots and the Black Swan, but you always end up with all the ends and the trim. And I'm thinking about maybe infusing that and making a sauce out of it, because mm. you always, you know, the sauce, ends of the sausages, but it'd be amazing if you could create like a smoked sauce for a fish dish, which have this 
smell, this smoky sort of smell. Back at the restaurant, and after a morning baking bread, it's time that Ravni and I sat down for a chat. Well, thanks so much for, for coming up, Rav, and, um, and uh, enjoy making bread with Alice. Loved it, and what a blast from the past, because I actually know Alice. Yeah, I love that. She helped at one of my very first countertalk events back in the day. That's wicked. Um, I'm glad we got Alice to make the bread with you, because to be honest, she knows so much more about it than I do. When she said that um, I think almost everyone here can make the bread, I think she was replacing me and everybody other than me can make the bread. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite impressed that she said that everybody has got a bit of an understanding of pastry because mm. I'm not used to that in kitchens. I always found that I was shunned in the corner yeah, and no one wanted to do the pastry shifts. It's great that everyone does it here. Yeah, I think that's such a shame, isn't it? Yeah. If, if, if you do, I mean, Callum, the head chef here, is very, very good at moving people around and no one seems to get left on a section for very long at all. And I think it helps the chefs understand that pastry is a discipline as well. Mm. You know, rather than like thinking that it's the last thing on the menu, people disregard it. It's quite nice. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a terrible way of looking at it. Though, yeah, that I've I think, always found that, that yeah, the chefs didn't chef. always respect the pastry section as much. And it seemed like quite a unique pastry section from my understanding. You had a sheeter in the back to do mm. the lamination. You're doing bread, you're doing different fermented things, cannelés. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I wish I had worked somewhere like this. Oh, that's... I really do. Do you want to come work? <laughs> you know what, We'd when the career you. dies off, <laughs> I'll send you my CV. <laughs> Ravneet told me that she'd worked her way through the ranks at private members clubs, learning Japanese pastry and in numerous fine dining restaurants. But it was a restaurant you might have heard of, St. John, where her career really took off. Sort of when I got to St. John, I got there four years in, I'd say, and I hated being a chef. And all I wanted to do was leave. And I was um, Googling how to get out of the chef world. <laughs> and I was escape. applying to jobs like food buyer at Cardo. I had no qualifications mm. for this. I had a psychology degree that I finished ditched this PhD that I was meant to do, went to go and be a chef because I just found on Google how to go and do it. Mm -hmm. Got to St. John, was trying to find a job outside of it at the time. And then I think I had got rejected from all these jobs. And a, a couple months into St. John, I fell in love with it. And I was like, this is good food. So why did you hate being a chef then? I think I was, I was quite embarrassed about how difficult I found it. Mm. And I had been in the types of kitchens mm -hmm. before St. John that I didn't really understand what it was to be a chef. I didn't really have many friends in the chef world. Mm. And I found it quite isolating because all of my friends were in these like graduate schemes and like meeting up on the weekends and celebrating birthdays and going to all of these things. Mm. And I felt very alone. I was earning maybe a quarter of what all my friends were earning. Mm. And I just felt really miserable. I had no prospects of like earning and saving money to get on the property ladder and do all of these things. And I think I just felt very isolated. And is that, so, so you obviously have an initiative called Counter Talk. And yeah. do you think it's those experiences which has led you to find found Counter Talk, and so Counter Talk is basically you trying to make a positive difference to the hospitality industry, especially in terms of jobs and employment opportunities. Yeah, I mean it was sparked by St John mm. because when I got to St John, not only was I working around like the most incredible people, 
people who loved being in the food world, people from all different types of backgrounds, and I un- suddenly understood what seasonality was and what good food was. Mm. Before that, I was working with a lot of like fruit purees and certain types of ingredients that weren't natural, and I thought that was how you cook mm. and that's how you make things. And I think getting to St. John and Fergus saying, oh, you can't use pistachios here, you can't use this mango puree, and me like understanding that I'd have to taste the fruit that was coming in in the morning, make something delicious with it, was like an amazing way of cooking and, mm. and eating and everything was woven in. You sat down for star food every day. You spoke to the front of house and it was just amazing, changed my life. And I thought, God, if I had come into a chef job like this in my 20s, you know, four mm. or five years ago, I would be at a much better stage right now. So mm. that's why Countertalk was started, to show people that good places exist. St. John didn't just help Ravneet fall in love with being a chef, it taught her a relationship with seasonal food. Seasonal produce is the real driving part of it. It does open up a whole new world of opportunity, doesn't it? It really, um, I think it changes your outlook as a chef and it, and it opens up opens up everything to a because I think without that it's quite boring working in a, a kitchen if you're just if you've not got a purpose if you aren't working towards um, some sort of food which has real meaning which is the produce that you're talking about yeah. then then you sort of think why am I doing this and I think I didn't even understand that meaning was was out there in the world because I didn't grow up going to fancy restaurants or knowing anything about good food. So unless you get shown that way, mm. how are you going to know? It was only by chance that I think I found the job at St. John on Gumtree. Wow. I managed to work there. I didn't even know what it was. I had no idea about the history of it. Really? didn't know anything about British seasonality. It was a massive like educational piece for me. Do you have any memories of something in particular that you were like, maybe it was like rhubarb that came into the kitchen or something like that, where you were just like, wow, that's, that's changed my outlook on this? I think it was, obviously, I also learned a lot about British cheese. I didn't know that people genuinely sat and ate a cheese course. Because the restaurants (laughs) that I'd been working at before St. John, the cheese wasn't really explained or it wasn't really a thing. Mm. And suddenly we had this map on the wall of where all the different cheeses were. We had the cheese guy come in and talk to us about where it was from. And we'd have a man that would bring in bags of elderflower in sacks and we'd make this elderflower cordial and it was just so wacky and I think that um, seeing that and understanding that it's all come all the dots sort of connected for me. Elderflower is an amazing one isn't it? Yeah. In terms of a seasonal product because it's just so for me it it tastes of sunshine like if I was going to define summer as a flavor it would be elderflower and what I love about it is that if you you know you make a cordial or something like that you you can use that all year round it kind of lightens things and you you feel like you're tasting fresh summer sunshine all year round. Yeah. That's a great seasonal ingredient for me, mm-hmm. um, but one that you can use all year round quite well. Um, whereas something like you know beautiful strawberries, something they're just available when they're available. And also quince. I had never worked with quince before, as an example. Yeah. I just thought, and I actually used to grow them in my garden at home, and I thought that they were inedible apples. And me and my <laughs> brother would use them as cricket balls. Wow. So Do you like I, cricket? <laughs> well, you know, uh-huh. I'm Indian. Uh-huh. I had a brother. I was, you know, I, I, I was forced to play cricket <laughs> as a child. But um, I remember getting these quinces and thinking, what is this hard apple? And learning how to poach them was with the skins and like the colour change. And I just thought it was fascinating. So was your food background growing up more Indian then? Very much Indian. And very, um, so my mum was born in Kenya, but she's Kenyan Indian. Okay. So her food is quite Gujarati influence, 
very spicy. My dad is Punjabi and um, sort of the marriage of the two meant that I ate a lot of Indian food as a kid. And what about, because what about desserts then? Uh, desserts, we've got big sweet tooths, so like Indian people love dessert, but I don't like Indian desserts. They're very, very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are like a, quite an acquired taste, but good. But we loved our puddings. As a kid, my dad would always take me to Tesco and we'd get the steamed syrup sponges. We'd have oh. spotted dick as a kid nice. and <laughs> trifles and all, you know, I loved pudding, jam, roly-polies, we'd buy it all. From those humble puddings that shaped Ravneet's childhood, she's developed a sweet tooth. She's now the proud owner of two published books. There's a cookie recipe in her first book that my wife Charlotte regularly makes, and I swear it's the best cookie recipe you'll find. But it strikes me that you put a lot of effort into writing that, a lot of love and effort into writing that book, and it feels to me that your recipes are very tried and tested. Like, you've really... Because I, I, I don't have the patience to try and test things that long. I feel like I just go on it eventually. It feels like you put a lot of effort into refining and refining and refining until you were clear that, all right, it's a cookie, but it, it is like a foolproof and it's the best recipe you can get. Is that, is that fair? That's the impression yeah. I have of how you cook. <laughs> I mean, I think that pastry book was based on, I used to carry this big orange folder around with me. Yeah. In every kitchen I went to, I'd have this big fat orange folder and it would in would go all these recipes that I'd either worked on in the restaurant or things that I'd tweaked or changed and the batches would be huge. But it's mostly because I then, whenever I was working, I'd work these private chef jobs, I'd always work on the side and I'd take this folder with me and I knew that in solitude, these recipes would work and I needed them to work because it was mostly me. And then when it came to getting the first book deal, I only had like a few, like 2000 followers on Instagram, but I had this folder that became a bit known Mm. and these regular customers at a place called Llewellyn's. I was a single pastry chef there and I got known for my puddings and they all came out of this folder. So the book is basically the folder that I had been carrying around with me for years in a book. That's exactly yeah. exactly what it is, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think those books are, because I'm not a big reader of cookbooks at all, but I like, I love books like what you've done there because it's sort of a, it's a bit of a one-stop shop, but it's actually very practical. There's, there's no real, like my book, full of gumph and words <laughs> and romantic paragraphs about things. It's just like, here's recipes that work and are delicious. Yeah. And I think there should be more books like that. So. Mm. Well, I wish That's I could write more romantically. Most <laughs> of my, like, whenever I try, it's just full of swear words and they get edited out. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> the thing is, if you write like I do, then you don't have to put as so many recipes in. So in the long run, it saves <laughs> no, you some <laughs> time. <laughs> people, people must cook out your book a lot. Do, they, do, you, do you get a lot of feedback? I'd say I get a few messages every day from someone who has made... Wow, every day? Yeah, who's made something. But they tend to be all of the same recipes. The chocolate cakes are very popular. The caramel miso tart is very popular. The rasmalai cake from the second book gets made all the time. And there's like, and the cookies. But to be honest, sometimes I get some disaster photos. (laughs) But they are people, but some people think that they're great. And I'm like, that has turned out wrong. Uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> and sometimes if I get time, I'll voice note them and just be like, next time maybe try and like spread them out a bit or, you know, lower your oven temperature. And if writing books and offering feedback to her followers isn't enough, Ravni is also the host of Junior Bake Off, where kids far more talented than I ever was pit their wits to make amazing cakes, breads and desserts. You must love doing Junior Bake Off. 
I is do. it fun? It was daunting. The first series was very daunting. Imagine how daunting it is for the kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I first, the first episode I ever did, I think I cried in my car. Really? Because I thought, I can't do this. What, you, nervous? Yeah. 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 Because remember, like, I, I've been in kitchens yeah. for my whole career, and then lockdown changed my whole life because obviously it was awful, mm. but at the same time, people started paying more attention to their phones. Yeah. I was on Instagram loads. I yeah. only got the job because someone spotted me on Instagram. Yeah. Never wanted to go and do TV. Plunged into it. You don't get any training. No. <laughs> Suddenly, there's 50 people looking at you with a camera. Yeah. And I found it so overwhelming. It is. I mean, I, it's funny. You say that I share a very similar story. I think my first doing the Great British Menu and just literally the, the, the stress that I felt doing it. And uh, I remember my first time doing Saturday Kitchen, doing live TV, and I was pretty much having a panic, panic attack in the dressing room. Yeah. And then sort of going on live TV. Yeah. And it is totally overwhelming. But, um, and I guess, but I think the great thing for you, I would never have known that you, you appear such a natural at it. So obviously, <laughs> good editing. we're both, or maybe good acting, I don't know. But no, that's amazing though to have kids who are working at such a level. Because I think even like when we were kids, none of these things existed. Like, I mean, I always think we're very lucky as chefs to have these sort of platforms to talk. You could be the best carpenter in the world, but you wouldn't be celebrated as much as a chef because we have the platform to, to talk about things. Um, but to be able to inspire kids of that age is just that that must that must feel good. Yeah, and I get very attached to them, I so bet. I hate sending them home. Oh uh, yeah, I know. That's so you bit. send them home, they cry, but then actually five minutes later they're running around and it's fine. But That's you get very weird. attached. So, so I judge on Great British Menu, <laughs> yeah. and I have to send chefs home, and obviously that's slightly different because it's their career and things, um, and I always find that really hard. If Junior Bake Off is anything like Great British Menu, then it'll shape a few careers for sure. GBM certainly took mine to another level. Well, I mean, Great, Great British Menu was amazing for me because it really, we, we, so we, we, I was running this place, but I mean, often there was nights I'd open for zero. Literally, and that's the most soul-destroying thing in the world. I mean, as a chef in London, you probably never came across that, but in the middle of nowhere, like we would have zero booked. And you get to sort of like seven o'clock and you'd be like, I'll just close all the fridges off and I'll just go in. And that was it. Oh my goodness. And like we had a mission star, but would cook, would have zero booked. So going on there for the first time, I was used to opening my restaurant for nobody and then cooking against people who had two mission stars or whatever. And that confidence thing is a real, there's nothing dolce confidence like nobody wanting to eat your food. In the whole world, nobody comes to visit you. And then did that change and then suddenly you're fully booked all the time? Yeah, exactly that. Wow. Literally overnight um, changed everything, yeah. Wow. Um, so it really does give you that huge exposure. Mm. There'll be a lot of people listening who've got young kids who are getting into cooking and uh, who have watched Junior Bake Off as well. Is, what would be the biggest piece of advice you could, you could give them? I would say if you're the parents, encourage your kids to practice and to have fun in the kitchen. Because when I was young, my mom actually is such a clean freak that she did not let me cook or bake <laughs> at home. And we used to have proper arguments about it. So I would always wait until she left the house um, and I'd make something really terrible. Um, and I think that you've just got to let your kids go for it. And don't worry about the mess. It will be clean. You can clean it up yeah. and get them to like watch things, watch cookery shows, get involved and um, read, like read loads of cookbooks. They've got there's more resources than ever now. I think it's all about practicing. I guess it's a fun thing to do together as a family as well. And so quality time together, um, baking has got to be one of the best things you can do. Mm. Um, when we make the cookies for my little boy, 
he eats more the dough, like ball in the dough. <laughs> He'll put whole balls of dough in his mouth. Um, so it's a win-win, isn't it? He likes it <laughs> yeah. when they're cooked, he likes it when they're raw. Yeah. And also I'd encourage people at this day and age to go outside and like take advantage of what Britain has got to offer because I don't think that, like I didn't know that as a kid. Mm. And although I grew up eating the most amazing Indian food, I really didn't know anything about what was being grown mm. around me. And I think that if you can, and you've got the time and the resources to do that with your kids, just like go out and have a look at what gets grown in the ground. I couldn't agree more. There's inspiration everywhere. But I couldn't let Ravneet go without asking her about seasonal cooking and what her favourite ingredient is that she'd love to have all year round. So the question I always ask is, like, what is your favourite seasonal ingredient? Is there something that comes up in the year and you're like, that is the time you've been waiting for? I really think it's rhubarb yeah. and my friends actually always laugh at me because none of them are in the food world but they think I'm mad and it's an ongoing joke that they'll rip me about my obsession with rhubarb <laughs> but it's because they don't understand how long we've spent with yeah. pears, apples and quinces yeah. that I'm just so happy when it's rhubarb season. So I mean you strike me as a very very busy person what else have you got going on this year what's coming up? Well I've got another show coming out in May which is really exciting with um, Michelle Rue oh, and wow. Mike Reed. I'm so excited for people to see it. So I'm gonna keep that under wraps until it comes out. And then hopefully another summer of Bake Off. I'm writing my third book at the moment, which is extremely stressful, but also so fun because for the first time ever, I'm making sure that everything is made in my home kitchen and it works in a home kitchen with not too many you know, pieces of equipment and that comes out in December. So I'm just sort of running around like that a headless like chicken. sounds like a lot of washing up doing it in so your So much washing up, so much clean. I'm also a meticulous clean freak, so I get very upset when it's messy and dirty. So is there any recipes left in your orange folder then? There or? are actually, I'd say about 60 to 70, still oh, so, in there, so there's, lingering. There's a, there's a book's worth then. Yeah, but, but, but they're not going in this book. Uh, they might come out in the future. I'm just holding those ones back. I think you, I think you need to, <laughs> yeah. yeah. With 15 years of being a chef under my belt, people wrongly think that I know about everything. But the truth is that I'm still learning. And I surround myself with people who all know things better than I do. Winning a mission star is as much about the blend of knowledge as it is anything else. And that's why I love having guests like Ravneet pay a visit, who can inspire me with ideas just as much as I can send them home with some recipes in mind. Wow, well, listen, thank you so much for coming up. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, I hope you enjoyed dinner tonight, but first, should we go for a little tour around the farm? Only if I can hold a baby pig. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's your rider. <laughs> we had a quick check afterwards to make sure there were no little piggies missing from the farm. And I know Ravni had a great time seeing what goes on in our Palace of Preserves and at Dickie's Preservation Station. And I have a sneaky feeling she might be back in the summer when we have a few more of those fresh berries on our menu. Next time, we're going to celebrate Ravneet's favourite ingredient, Yorkshire rhubarb, with a trip to see exactly how it's grown. They do say you can hear it growing. First starts to pop through, you know it creaks and pops. Yeah, there's a proper atmosphere in here actually. I don't think I've ever felt atmosphere in a growing sense like this. You feel like there's energy. And MasterChef judge and food critic Jimmy Famuera comes to lend a hand with my cattle. The uh, the cows are poking their heads through. <laughs> well, we're getting among it now, aren't we? Oh, wow. For more information about Seasoned, check out my website, www.tommybanks.co.uk or check us out on social media. 
If you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a positive rating and a review. It would mean an awful lot to me and it really helps to support us and get this podcast off the ground. Most importantly though, tell your friends, tell someone else you've enjoyed it. Maybe they'll join us on our journey too. Seasoned is a What's the Story podcast. It's hosted by me, Tommy Banks, and produced by Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis.